And I remember having those thoughts and feelings when she was younger, which was like, oh, well, I guess I got to give up on whatever dreams I have because (laughs) there is no time (laughs) between mothering and working. I'm not going to be able to do anything else. And it's, and it's just not true. Really want to encourage mamas who are listening. Please, please, please remember your dreams. There will be moments where you have to press pause. You're not stopping. You just have to press pause and you'll be able to, you know, press play again and pick back up. Hi, I'm Bridget Garsh, co-founder of Neighbor Schools and your host for Work Like a Mother a podcast dedicated to real conversations with incredible women juggling work, life, and motherhood. Today, I'm really excited to sit down with Christine Platt, author, activist, advocate, and the Afro-minimalist. I feel like I'm often walking on eggshells these days, not because I'm navigating some complex politics at work, because I never quite know what reaction I might get from Hudson. One minute, he'll calmly and sweetly ask for a cup of milk, even remembering to say please. And the next, he's about to launch his body out of his seat and onto the floor because I dared to butter his toast when he wanted to do it himself. No joke. We walked past a neighbor's house earlier this week and there was a bright yellow dump truck in their sandbox. Hudson immediately spotted it. He announced he wanted it and he almost made a beeline to grab it. I get it. It was a pretty sweet dump truck. So I tried my best to acknowledge his feelings, explain that the dump truck belongs to another family and encourage him to hurry home with me so we could play with one of the 10 construction vehicles we have at our house. He reminded me that our dump truck isn't yellow, and he wanted this yellow one. So he proceeded to throw himself onto the ground, wriggling about, shouting that he wanted this one, and topping it all off with an ear-piercing screech. As I did my best to remain calm and help him through his enormous feelings, I wish that Christine was the woman who walked by us and witnessed this epic toddler meltdown. I really could have used her all-knowing smile and a, we've all been there, it gets better. With two kids under the age of three, I love any opportunity to learn from moms who've been through it before. But Christine isn't just any mom. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation, but my biggest takeaway was to always make time for what I'm passionate about because kids do eventually grow up and to cherish the precious moments that I have with my boys while they last. Most moms listening will know Christine as the author behind the beloved Anna and Andrew series of children's books. But writing was a second or even third act for Christine. You may also know her as the Afro-minimalist or the managing director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. And all of that's after a career in corporate law while raising her young daughter. How on earth has she managed to squeeze all of it in? Christine shares how she never lost sight of her passion even if at times she had to put her dreams on hold 
and how she fights to protect time, even if only a few minutes a day, to nourish those passions and never lose herself in the process of raising her child. Welcome to Work Like a Mother. We're so excited to have you today. I'm so excited to be here. It would be amazing if you could describe your journey for becoming the managing director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. Sure. So um, I this is actually my second time serving as the managing director. Um, when Dr. Ibram Kendi first founded um, the Anti-Racism Center at American University in 2017, um, I had like basically reached out to him and said, hey, I see, you know, you guys are in D.C., happy to volunteer and help support in any way I can. Um, you know, I'm just writing full time. At, at the time, I thought I was still going to be a novelist, but that's a whole other story. And so... Um, uh, Ibram actually said, he was like, you know what, I actually need a managing director, right? And so, um, yeah, I ended up um, applying for that role and, um, you know, working with Ibram and um, having an opportunity to build and grow the center basically from, from nothing but ideas on paper, which is pretty exciting. Wow, what an amazing journey. And so you you started writing before becoming the managing director, then you started yeah. writing for children while you were there. Yeah. So I, um, I had actually, uh, I published my first novel in 2015. I, I indie published it. Um, it's called the truth about a wee tea and it's a historical fantasy that's sort of based on the premise that the spirits of slaves are not at rest and they're embodied in the winds of hurricanes. Right. Um, and it was a theory that I had heard in grad school, and um, one of my friends challenged me to do National Novel Writing Month with her, and I had this novel. This is like the wildest story, just so you know. So, <laughs> Wait a so you wrote this novel in a month? You, uh, so the National Novel Writing Month, you write the challenge is to write 50,000 words in a month, which is, which is essentially a good first draft of a novel. And what it did was it, it, um, it just reawakened this love that I had for storytelling that had been, I guess, suppressed for so long, you know, working in, in big law, working in government. Um, and at the time, I was I was wor um, working as a senior policy advisor at the U.S. Department of Energy. I, again, I was younger, so even as I'm saying this out loud, like my mind and body would never be able to do this today. But I would literally, like, you know, go to work, come home, be wife, be mom, and then I would go to um, my office in the basement at the time and just like write for hours and work on this novel. And then I started like hearing from friends who were reading it. They were like, oh my God, I love this book. It's so good. I was like, are you you're serious? You know, when it's your family. It wasn't until I started hearing from strangers that I was like, wow, maybe I did write a good book. And um and then I heard from uh, Emily Sylvan Kim, who is now my literary agent, who asked to represent me. And so that's how this whole thing started. And um, yeah, I thought I would be a novelist, um, but I could never really get that second novel 
off the ground. Like there was a different type of pressure now that I wasn't writing for fun, now that I was writing for work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, my, uh, my agent had said like, you know, there's this publisher that's looking for a diverse children's series. I know you said you don't want to write for children, but why don't you pitch it and give it a try? And I pitched and I wrote the pitch in like, I don't know, an hour. you know, like when you're not, again, no pressure. Right. Um, and yes, that was my first like foray into writing for children. And that series uh, is the Anna and Andrew series, actually. So how many books are part of the Anna and Andrew series? Yes, I've written 14 books in that series, um, written other series, the Shiro series. I've written um, autobiographies for, for early readers and now I am um, working on a new series, which I'm really, really excited about. Um, and that is called Frankie at Five. And that will be published with Candlewick um, Walker Books in 2022. Seems like when you give yourself these really short, very aggressive deadlines, you just flourish. So it is. I don't know what it is. I think. <laughs> Actually, you know, I, th- I think it comes from having a background in law. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I have just been, I don't know, I don't even want to say trained because it's more like, more like hazing um, <laughs> to be, you know, I'm just conditioned to just sit still and get it done and meet a deadline. And, um, you know, I do think, I do think certain professions um, have an advantage mm-hmm. when it comes to writing and, and, and tight project deadlines and stuff like that, because we just, you know, have a different level of uh, accountability. Also, um, you know, I mean, when I started in the workforce, I started in big law, which required me to bill my time in six minute Mm. increments. And so I also have a very different understanding and concept of Billable time versus non-billable time, which is like one of the first things you learn. You're like, I've been at work all day, right? But you've, you know, you may go for a walk with your colleague. You may have a two-hour meeting, a two-hour lunch or whatever, right? And then you go to look at your time and you're like, oh, I only build an hour. hour, right. Yeah, right? And so, again, I think, you know, having that experience, um, it just really, really taught me how to manage my time. Um, very, very differently, I think, than anyone who has not had to bill in six-minute increments. As I'm hearing you talk about it, it also reminds me of motherhood as well, because (laughs) that forces you to look at your time in a totally different way where you think, you know, you used to, I don't know, relaxing might happen over hours, and now you (laughs) cherish... 10 minutes by yourself of not having something to do or having someone that needs you. So I agree. I agree. And I mean, I, you know, my daughter was a surprise. Um, I actually had her uh, my first year of law school, which is, I, I, even when I tell my story, sometimes I'm just like, how did I survive? But anyway, um, she, she was the law school baby. So whatever, you know, my classmates needed some, baby aromatherapy because we were all stressed out (laughs) come over um but yeah I mean again I think like all these instances you know having a toddler 
um, working in big law um, as, as, a, as a woman and as a black woman. So, you know, already feeling like I have to uh, overperform <laughs> um, and work 10 times harder. Um, yeah, I think all of those things, um, you know, over the course of my career have, have conditioned me to now being able to manage and do that, do that type of work and make that kind of commitment for myself, which is, which is nice. How else would you say motherhood has informed your work and how much has your work informed your motherhood? Motherhood is everything to me now. Let me just say this. Okay. I'm all sentimental because she's (laughs) seven. So if we were having this conversation when she was three, or four, I might be like, oh my God, it's hard. <laughs> you know, um, and it, it, it is hard, but I, I think the beautiful thing about motherhood is that you find a strength and resiliency um, that you didn't even know that you had, right? I mean, like you would say that you were tired before you were a mother and then you become a mother and you're like, oh, there are levels to tired. Mm-hmm. I'm not tired. <laughs> back then right um and so yeah I mean in in terms of it informing my work I mean I feel like um especially working in racial and social justice and working in these areas I mean there's no way I cannot think about my daughter and and her friends and and our family and the world that I want them to inherit right and so I think I definitely am and very emotionally invested in this work. And that's something that my colleagues and I talk about um, quite often um, because, you know, it's, it's unlike when I was in big law and doing transactional work, right? It's like, I don't have an emotional attachment to this wind turbine. <laughs> I'm just going to sit here and read the credit swap agreement and whatever. Right. But when you're talking about human life, when you're talking about humanity, I think that, um, it, it adds, I mean, I, I, I don't want to lose that emotional connection that I have. As stressful as it may be at times, um, as hard as it may be, as many tears as I've cried, I mean, I think that's what makes the work authentic and it makes me, you know, want to give 100, 110%. And, you know, it's what makes the late nights, <laughs> you know, worth it. Um, I think in terms of it um, informing me as a mother, you know, being able to have really candid conversations with my daughter, um, conversations that I wish that my mother might have been able to have with me, even that in itself is powerful, right? Like being able to get her to understand and explain systemic racism and some of these other things from a child's perspective, right? And, and building upon that information gradually, which is one of the things that I always encourage um, families to do, right? Like don't feel that you have to provide all of the answers right now and you need to give a three-hour lecture about how systemic racism is affecting our society, right? It may be a very, you know, simple question that you're asked and you provide a very simple answer that you continue to expand upon over time so that when they are 17, you know, you can, you can say, so here's another example of systemic racism, right? And this is the world, you know, that you all are inheriting unless you do something different. You're almost a voting age. You know what I mean? Like you build upon it over time though. I feel like 
having those conversations, um, uh, I don't want to say too early with children because it's not too early. It's never too early to talk about to talk about race and social justice, but making sure it's done in in an age appropriate, child friendly way, mm-hmm. um, and 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 knowing that that's not going to be your last opportunity <laughs> to have to have that conversation, I think helps parents a lot. It helps them a lot to know that. Well, it sounds like you're really saying you're starting the foundation and then you're building on that. <laughs> as you go, just like you would with any skill for a child. There's no, you don't, you don't tell them, um, please don't touch that once. And all of a sudden they know it and they understand it and they're not going to do that again. It's all about that build. Yeah. Or you don't say, please don't touch that. Did you know that the first stove was invented and da, 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 right? Like you don't go into this whole Right. And you don't give statistics about how many children are burned and like you don't do all that. Right. And so it's, yeah, it's very much the same sort of thing. Right. And that you, you are laying the foundation and more importantly, opening up the channels of communication Mm -hmm. so that your children feel comfortable Mm -hmm. coming to you, having these conversations. Right. And so if every time they ask you, what they are assuming is a simple question about race or injustice or what's happening in the news. And it turns into this, all right, we're about to have the talk. You know what I mean? Like, right. or if you push them away mm-hmm. and say like, I'll just, you know, you're too young to talk. We can talk about that later. Right. Like those are the things that are problematic. Giving, giving a, a simple response and knowing that you'll have an opportunity to build upon it over time um, is, is, I think, one of the, one of the biggest gifts that, that parents can give their children. So amidst all of the work that you've already described for us and that you've accomplished and the variety of it as well, you also discovered minimalism. Yes. <laughs> How did you discover and start your journey to become a minimalist? Yes, this all happened around the same time when I, um, I, you know, finished writing the, the first novel, got the agent, um, was working on my second novel, and really wanted to devote a lot of time and attention to it. Um, by, that, by that time, too, uh, my daughter was in middle school. I'd been working nonstop (laughs) since she was born and, you know, we were getting ready to go through a change of administration and government. And I was like, this might be a good time for me to just take some time to breathe and, and write and just, you know, be a mom and focus on something, focus on something different. And, um, I, so I ended up being at home a hundred percent of the time, um, as opposed to maybe 10% of the time. Right. I, you know, our, I think we miss, or I shouldn't say we miss, we don't even realize how much we have in our homes or don't use in our homes because, um, prior to the pandemic anyway, we were rarely at home for breakfast, you're at home for, you know, dinner and in the evening and you sleep through the night and then you get up and you do it again. So, me being at home full time really allowed me to see like how much house we weren't using, how many things I weren't using. Right. And so, um, and I just started to feel like 
overwhelmed too by, by, and house wasn't super clutter. It was a lot of, there was always a lot of stuff to clean, but it, I called it like organized chaos, which I feel mm-hmm. like a lot of people have. We find a way to organize our madness and hide our things and, you know, make things look orderly. And so um, I had read a blog post at the time um, by the minimalists who are um, Rob, Josh, um, and Ryan. Um, and, and I just remember looking up and I was like looking around and seeing everything in my house for the first time. I was like, Oh yeah, I remember, remember buying that when I was sad. Remember buying that when I got a raise. Right. And I just was, I was able to like start to make those, the emotional spending, um, habits that I had like really see and make those connections. And I was like, you know, I'm over this. And I was like, I'm going to be a minimalist. <laughs> so crazy and everyone who knew me thought I was they were like yeah right <laughs> you know because I was known for being like this bargain shopper thrift shopper like oh I just they thought we'll see how long this lasts this is oh, like yeah. a, a phase they gave it that much thought I think it was just ah all right so where are we going you know when are we going to the mall <laughs> right um and yeah that's how my journey started and um it started with me removing one painting from our dining room wall because I was so afraid that like the house was going to look empty if I removed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I ended up chronicling my journey online as the Afro minimalist because, um, you know, I, I didn't see a lot of minimalist of color. Um, I think at the time Marie Kondo's book may have just come out or was just being announced around the time I was starting. Um, But yeah. And so I said, you know, I'm going to chronicle my journey and, you know, it's going to look very different because it is going to infuse the history and culture of the African diaspora, because those are things that are important to me. And so I like, you know, created this moniker, the Afro minimalist and started chronicling my journey online and showing a different approach to minimalism. Um, and I would say it's, it's, you know, so much of minimalism is, is thought of in aesthetics rather than the practice, right? And so not that I was doing anything especially, you know, <laughs> unique or wonderful. What I was doing was just showing the practice of minimalism, which is, you know, living with intention and being intentional um, about your purchases and what you keep and what you own and, and, and what you love. And um, yeah. And then it ended up just being this thing. (laughs) And now I'm writing a book um, on uh, the Afro minimalist guide to living with less. So that'll be my approach to the Ted talk. It's just been, you know, I, I, it's, I love having these conversations because it reminds me just like what I've been able to do and accomplish as a woman and as a mother. You seem to have it all figured out. What were some of the challenges that you faced as a mom? I have to tell you a funny story. When she was around four or five years old and started going to school, you know, you have like this early start time Mm -hmm. and she would come in, come in my room and wake me up. That was her, her little job. She toddled her little self in there and she, you know, good morning, mommy. And I would say like, good morning. And then I would say, 
do you want to be on time or do you want to snuggle? Right. And she would say, I want to snuggle. Right. Right. And so we would usually have like these extra, just five to 10 minutes in the morning, just snuggling, which in DC, that is enough time to have you late. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, we were those, those early years of school. Yeah. We were late many, many times. She had many, many tardies and I, I have no regret. Even now she's 17. She'll come in my room and I'll say like, do you want to snuggle? She'd be like, I want to snuggle, you know, and it's just, yeah. So anyway, that's my, that's my, my, my bad motherhood. (laughs) confession. You know, I can add the time. I just let her eat popsicles for dinner one night because I was just like, I'm not fighting about it anymore. You know, like have the, and in the moment, I think it's so funny. Mothers, you know, some of the decisions that we make, um, you know, you, you may feel bad, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And then you look back on it with just laughter because you realize like everyone is just trying to figure it out and survive. Right. Yes, another tip that I like to give young mothers is like extend yourself some grace and and be easy with yourself. It's so important. When I'm listening to you talk about this, it's reminding me of how you started your TED Talk. Actually, you shared a quote from Audre Lorde yes. that said, if you don't define yourself for yourself, you'll be crushed into other people's fantasies of you and eaten alive. And you were talking about minimalism but um, and your discovery of it. But as I heard you say that, I thought, this is so true for motherhood. Absolutely. And as we're talking about it now, there are so many things and decisions that we make on a regular basis where they could be judged entirely uh, by your family, strangers. Mm-hmm. And we need to we need to own it and and define it for ourselves. Otherwise, it's going to be defined for us. Absolutely, and and you know, I, I think it's important to have other mamas in your village that you can be honest with, right? The mama that you can call and say, oh "My God, she screamed all night. She just kept asking for a popsicle. Finally, I gave her a popsicle. I like. I don't care. It's eleven o'clock at night." And you, you want the friend that's not, you know, that's not like, oh my God, give her a popsicle. What are you doing? You want the friend that's going to be like, man, you know, that happened to me the other night. Mm-hmm. Only it was a bag of Doritos. And we sat there and we ate them together and I don't feel bad. You know what I mean? Like you just, you need friends that, that you can be honest with and say like, you know, from, from joking about what you're, what you fed or didn't feed your children to being very serious and saying like, I just need an hour to myself, like literally at my wit's end. If you can just come watch my daughter, watch my son just for an hour, it would be so helpful. I had this wonderful village of, of, of other mamas that I could be honest with, that I could ask for help and support. And um, it, it, we defined it for ourselves. There was no mom shaming. There was no judgment, you know, and um, I think it's really, it's, it's really, really important because a lot of women um, and a lot of families, I should even say, are, are, are unprepared for what it, what it, what the reality of bringing home 
a new life um, because of what we are conditioned to believe that is supposed to look and feel like, right? And when it doesn't feel all unicorny and rainbowy and, you know, pure. Hard. Yeah, you're just like, what is wrong with me, right? Like you start to feel like something is wrong with you. And so that's why it's so important that we share our stories, that we share our truths, that we encourage other mamas, you know, like I, often I'll see, you know, a two-year-old having a tantrum <laughs> in the store, just like rolling all over the floor, you know, and just say some encouraging words to mama, right? And, you know, you can kind of, based on their temperament, you can kind of, you know, like, wow, she might be a good break dancer one day, right? <laughs> or you can say, my daughter's, you know, 16, 17 now, and I remember those days like it was yesterday, and I promise you it's going to be okay. I love that. Yeah. Um, we all need to support one another. Motherhood is hard enough, and mm-hmm. society puts so much pressure on us, and we put so much pressure on ourselves that judging one another does nothing but hurt us, not help us. At all. At all. What advice do you have for your pre-mom self? Please, please, please remember your dreams. There will be moments where you have to press pause. You're not stopping. You just have to press pause and you'll be able to, you know, press play again and pick back up. Maybe when your children are older, you know, maybe when you, um, you know, find some opportunities or move closer to family or whatever that, you know, provide you with a, with a little break, a little window of time. Um, I also, I love Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic. And one of the things that she says that I love so much is that, you know, when you are in love or when you're in an affair, hopefully no one listening is in an affair, but <laughs> you know, what you do is you find time and you make time, right? And so treating whatever it is that you love, whatever that dream is, whatever you want to do, almost treating it as like the secret lover that you have and you show up for it and you make time for it. And sometimes it may be 15 minutes, right? Like sometimes I would only have maybe 15 minutes to write or 10 minutes to write. And I I encourage mamas in particular to write that down because I have a lot of friends now. We like raised our girls together and, you know, kids are going off to college and um, they've forgotten what they love to do, right? Because motherhood and, and, you know, partnerships and all these things can be that consuming um, that you forget, right? And so trying to remember and tap into what brought you joy mm-hmm. or you became a mother and holding on to that and sustaining that and, and continuing to nurture that, whether it's 15 minutes here or two hours there, um, is really important because the time will come when you have a lot of freedom to, to really give it a hundred percent. Right. I mean, my daughter is fully independent <laughs> now and, um, yeah, I have, I have a lot of time and I'm grateful, um, that I have an opportunity to do so many things, um, that I love to do. So it's my little tip for mamas. That is so inspirational and hits me very close to home as I have a three year, almost three year old and a five month old. So I am on the other end of the spectrum feeling 
there is no time. There's not yeah. enough time. So my life is, so they're my life, right? <laughs> right. Between work and them and maybe my husband sneaks in a little, a little yeah. bit. It feels like there, there isn't enough time in the day yeah. for sure. Yeah. So I love, I love yeah. that reminder. I could talk to you forever. There is so much that I could learn from you and that you have to share with moms, um, with the world really. So thank you for spending time with me. Thank you for sharing your story with all of our, our listeners. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Bridget Garsh, and this is Work Like a Mother. I'm excited to share another amazing Working Mama story with you next week. But before I go, I have a quick favor to ask. Please help us spread the word by giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way for more working moms to discover our show. Thanks, and have a great week.